News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. On this Tuesday morning, let's say good morning to our Raji Sohal. Hi, Raji. Hi, Simi. Good morning. How are you doing? I am good, thank you. I'm not dropping money, so that's probably a good thing, right? <laughs> uh, yes, this story out of Coquitlam is intriguing. The Coquitlam RCMP seek the rightful owners of thousands of dollars in cash, which I didn't even know people carried anymore, which was left behind at a value village. Um, police believe that someone accidentally left money in a donation dropped off at Value Village in recent days. And then there was another incident, um, you know, several months ago in January when someone left a large sum of money at Ikea. Seriously, I haven't even held paper cash. I haven't held money I think, in so long. I think I have a $5 bill in my wallet that's been there <laughs> for about a year. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I think it's been And every time I'm like, oh yeah, I could have paid that in cash. I have $5 here. I just keep forgetting it's there. So th- this is the thing that gets me is uh, there's two cases here, right? The, the, what their yeah. police are saying is that they have somebody who dropped thousands of dollars or, or a lot of money at Ikea And then they have somebody who accidentally donated money at this value village. But I guess you really have to be specific about what you lost in order to claim it. Yeah, like you'll have to obviously with the RCMP identify like what what it was left behind in the amount it was. I'm less sympathetic about the Ikea one because it might have, I don't know, might have been shopping. I don't know. Why are you at Ikea with like a huge wad of cash? Like at Ikea, you want to get in and out as fast as possible, as efficient as possible. You need like aerodynamic <laughs> features on your side. You don't need to by a lot of cash, right? right? You need your GPS. <laughs> but that one I'm also very s- skeptical and suspicious about because that was months ago, apparently, the Ikea one. So somebody dropped a lot of money in Ikea in Coquitlam and didn't report it to the police because the police are only now months later saying, hey, by the way, if you lost some money in Ikea, feel free to come and claim it, but you just have to tell us how much it was. It's a strange one. Have you ever found a lot of money? Does $20 count? <laughs> no. So there was a period in my life where I used to find money. Like, one like for a living? In, uh, <laughs> it almost could have been. One time I was dropping my sister off at the airport. I was with my other sister. And we stepped out of the car in the parking lot. And we saw like a, just a black, big leather, more than a wallet. It was kind of like a portfolio. Uh, so we open it up. Uh, we're trying to move fast. We got to get our sister on the plane on time. And uh, when we get inside the airport, my sister pops it open to start looking for ID. No ID, just twenty thousand dollars at the airport. Yeah, you're not and even you, you're not supposed to get on a plane without like you have to have less than ten thousand dollars. You don't have to have less than ten thousand. There's no ID in there. There were two business cards for different identities. But I mean, the person could have, uh, who knows, like you can't even begin to speculate. Nonetheless, you know, I didn't feel comfortable about thinking about what this money could be for or why there's no other IDs in there and that kind of thing. It just wasn't our money. And uh, we were going to go turn it in. And the guys, there were two men lost and found. (laughs) Who, yeah, we we got some flights, first class flights. Yeah, upgraded Uh, that flight before. (laughs) (laughs) So the guys at the lost and found looked a little too excited to accept it. So we didn't give it to them. We were like, we'll have to investigate this on our own. 
we did locate somebody who came and picked it up from us. He forgot to say thank you. No, he didn't. He did. He was too stressed out. And I mean, sweating bullets. Um, I'm guessing he probably had to miss his flight because after we dropped her off um, is when we started to investigate. And I had another thing I had to go to. So we left the airport. So I'm sure he, you know, didn't get on his plane in order right. to try and chase this money. But this person who lost money at the Value Village in Coquitlam, that makes me a little bit sad because it was left in a don you know, in a donation in a garment maybe or a purse oh, or something forgot. like that. So, maybe they didn't know it was in there. Maybe they were cleaning yeah. out like a relative's home or something. That happens exactly. all the time. Exactly. You're right. That it, one more sympathy than the IKEA one for sure. Yeah, the IKEA one's a bit dodgy. And, you know, I'm not gonna now comb IKEA in order to look for money, but I will think twice <laughs> at Value Village. I'm going to start looking in those purses. Time, to, vol- time to volunteer yeah. at Value Village. Thanks right? for that, Roger. We're going to check out with you in a little while, too. Thanks, Simi. The IKEA one is also interesting because police went to the trouble of saying that the, the person who picked it up turned it in immediately, and it was a large sum of cash, right? Do you have a story like Roger's? Would you turn it in immediately? Do a little investigating on your own. You can email me, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it is a tough morning to talk about sports if you're a Toronto Maple Leafs fan, but it is playoff time in both the NHL and the NBA. And so far, what has really stood out when watching these games is the fans. Just that sound of having fans back in the stands versus the silence of the past year. Well, it has been remarkable, especially if you're watching a game from the United States where some cities have just, they're back to full capacity in their arenas. So are the fans making a difference? It was enough of a concern for Ontario Premier Doug Ford to allow 500 fully vaccinated frontline healthcare workers into the arena last night for the hockey game at the last minute. But for us to really enjoy watching a game, is the sound of the crowd necessary? Is it is it more of a pickup for the athletes, maybe? Well, to talk more about this, we're joined by Catherine Saviston, who's a professor and Canada Research Chair in Physical Activity and Mental Health. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning. Do you think the crowd makes a difference? Absolutely, on on all levels, uh, for the for the athletes, for the fans, for the coaches, the referees, fans certainly make a difference. In what way do you think it is? Does it provide a mental boost, or what is it? So there's a number of reasons. I mean, obviously the the motivation, the mental boost for some athletes. Um, it's a it gives a form of feedback to the athletes as they're as they're going down the ice or the court. Um, it provides you know sort of that feedback, the motivation. Um, fans themselves in the stands, it, it provides them, you know, a sense of cohesion, a sense of purpose for, for cheering uh, for their teams. And we know from, you know, long history of research that fans have had an impact on referees and decision making on, you know, the ice or the court as well. Really? We've done research into that? Absolutely. There's, you know, home court advantage and the ways in which the teams play um, at home versus away. And then the ways that that the games are, are called because of having the fans in the stands. Um, there's been, you know, sort of uncontested evidence that there is some home court advantage um, in, in a variety of different sports. And that home court advantage has been sort of questioned, obviously, and, and challenged throughout the pandemic, uh, where we see, um, you know, sort of um, standings like the NBA last year, where for the first time uh, that there was no home court advantage. So there is certainly something to be said about, the ways in which the not only the fans for you know in terms of home court advantage because 
there's the travel and, and a whole bunch of sort of stressors that are tied to to moving around and, and playing in different areas. But also the, the fans make a big difference on that. So is there a physical reaction that where the sound of the crowd kind of benefits an athlete? Like, do they get an adrenaline rush out of that? Is there some kind of mental edge that happens? Yeah, absolutely. It, it provides them with a sense of, of purpose. It provides them with a sense of, you know, um, cohesion that people are cheering for them. There's, you know, a sense of feedback in terms of, you know, whether it's a good play or a bad play, you get you get that feedback really quickly um, and very loudly. So, you know, players are, have been playing with fans and stands, you know, throughout their whole professional and, and competitive careers. And so, by having those fans in the stands that provide that that feedback, that sense of motivation, that sense of purpose, it um, it certainly helps the athletes play. Of course, there are some athletes who you know fare worse with fans because you know it does provide a, a bigger stressor, a bigger sense of anxiety to to play in front of others for some athletes. And so you know those athletes probably fared better better during the pandemic um, without having the fans. But for the most part, we know that having that fan noise. Um, it certainly gives a boost to the athletes. So then over the last year, Catherine, you had no fans and fans. Was this a time of research for you? Is this something that you've been digging into? It's certainly something that across all, you know, sort of sports psychology colleagues have, have certainly looked into, you know, like I said, the home field advantage and, and fan noise. Um, there's been actually a history of looking at, you know, whether how loud fans are and, and the impact on playing um, of athletes, you know, in some of the, uh, big football stadiums, for example, the, the noise level, the decibel level can get really high. And, you know, evidence to show that um, even those decibel levels that are like jumbo jet level, um, you know, ha- doesn't have any more impact than sort of the, the bigger crowd noise. So there's some point at which fan noise is, is really just important no matter how loud it is. Um, but all across, you know, so decibel level all the way through to, you know, sort of, again, that, that home field advantage, how referees make calls, how athletes play um, in different arenas and different uh, stadiums. So tons of, of research and, and potential to compare, you know, fans and no fans in, in these different environments. Yeah, you mentioned the referees there. So in what way does fan noise impact the referees? Certainly evidence to show that when fans react to a certain call, immediate, you know, it's an immediate reaction. And so the referees, uh, you know, there's been research to show that they make calls based on the ways that fans react versus necessarily um, the, what they saw. Or because the, the play happened so quickly, um, referees can be um, sort of shifted in terms of their decision making very quickly with fans. Now, of course, with, you know, with advances in technology and, and more um, play by, you know, playback and, and being able to see, you know, um, the calls or the plays, uh, there's less evidence of the fans themselves having that direct impact on referees, but it certainly still is, um, is part of, you know, the research in this area. Uh, also, we've noticed in the last week, couple of weeks, particularly with the NBA playoffs, there have been a n- numerous instances of fans behaving badly, right? Another case of somebody running onto the court last night and trying to dunk during the basketball game, during the Washington Wizards game. Uh, is that just, you know, do you think people are just so unused to it? Or are they so, they're a little over exuberant or is this normal fan behavior? It is. I mean, obviously across, you know, time, there's always been those fans, those, you know, one-offs that, that do try to run on the field or the court. And, and you know, it, there's a whole bunch of different factors that play in, you know, about attention, about being that person, about 
you know, showing off that you're there. Um, you know, so a whole bunch of different factors that play into it. But, you know, being silly um, has, has been something that we've seen across all sports, you know, over time. And so there's definitely that one that one off. And, you know, I'm sure that there's people who think um, that feels like we're coming back to the new norm um, when there are fans that actually get on the court after having a pandemic, you know, much like watching the differences in, in the ways in which Canadian, you know, hockey versus American hockey have been with, you know, if you watch the, the Boston-New York game last night, it looked, you know, like there was a full stadium versus, yeah. you know, the Toronto-Montreal game where there were very few, uh, some, which was great, but but very few. And so, you know, these dichotomies and these things that we're going to see, um, natural fan behavior, I mean, it's, it's part of what makes the viewers at home uh, feel connected to the games as well, you know, because if you're not at the game, um, being feeling like you're part of that game and seeing that spontaneity that happens at the games is part is completely part of what was missing it during the pandemic. That spontaneous, you know, the dancing, the the yeah. chants, the you know, running on the court. You know, those are just different things that are all part of sport. That is so true, and I, you don't didn't really realize how much I had missed it until I heard it. Right until you heard it again, you realize, oh yeah, this is such a big part of watching sports. Exactly. And it is. It's an entertainment value, right? And and a lot of what happens in sport is, um, you know, it's it's unknown. It's, you know, and so it's that thrill of, of knowing what's going to happen next and, and having those fans be part of what happens next is, is certainly part of that, you know, that value of being a fan from, from home, you know. Oh, fascinating talk. Catherine, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That's, Have a great day. You too. That's Catherine Zabison, a professor in Canada Research Chair in Physical Activity and Mental Health. She's done a lot of research into this field about having fans in arenas. It's been a very stark uh, comparison, right? A really big difference when you watch this and these fans behaving badly. There's like all these instances of it. And I thought, is it just that people are so excited again to be back in an arena watching a sports game and they just get carried away? I mean, the NBA has already banned like four or five fans and four or five different instances in games so far during these playoffs. Again, another one last night. Guy ran onto the court, thought it would be great to try to dunk while they were playing a game in front of him. I don't know what they're thinking. But yeah, you can tell there's a lot of excitement just being back in the building. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, that's a classic right there. Uh, we're checking back in with Raji Sohal. And so far, what I've learned this morning about Raji is that I need to go for walks with her more because apparently she finds money. <laughs> <laughs> I used to. It was Aww. a regular occurrence. There was one time when I was in New York and it was late at night, early 20s. And in the span of one block, I found $800. But it wasn't, I don't think, from the same source. It was like a $100 bill over here, deep in the snow, over there on the edge of the sidewalk. Are you kidding? Are you exaggerating? Oh, I'm not. And it was USD, Simi. So you found $800 US in the span of one block, but in different places? Different places. I mean, it was in Manhattan. And it was a very snowy day, a windy day too. So it's possible maybe it flew around. I don't know. But New York is not the kind of place where you can just pick up raw cash and be like, hey, anybody lose 100? I mean. Did it ever occur to you during this period of your time when you seemed incredibly lucky to buy a lottery ticket? 
Like, did you ever think? Embarrassingly, no. Oh, <laughs> what a waste. In fact, I felt like, oh, shoot, $800. Like, this is really lucky. I should give it back. I should like, so I donated some during that trip. And then when I got back to Montreal, where I was living at the time, I donated some more there. It's probably left with like $50. <laughs> Different times before I had two kids. Unbelievable. Okay, I can't, and you never even bought a lottery ticket. That's amazing. Uh, well, if you've had, if you've won money before, let's see if you can, anybody out there can top your stories, Raji. Uh, if they've won, if you've found some money, let's hear that story. Simi at cknw.com. Seems like we're talking a lot about sports this morning, too. Yeah, big news in tennis because uh, tennis superstar Naomi Osaka has uh, pulled out of the French Open. And this happened after she was fined $15,000 for not fulfilling uh, your required, the uh, obligation to speak to the media after following a match at a different tournament. And now those doing press right after a match is contractually required. It's a normal part of the job. But you often see how during those press conferences or when the mic is just one-on-one with an athlete, they're like very uncomfortable. They're looking at the ground. They're exhausted. They've just been playing this not only insane physical match, it's a mental thing for them as well. And uh, her reason for not wanting to do the press was because she struggles with depression and she said that it makes her extremely anxious. Makes sense, right? Yeah. But critics have been so hard on athletes from the beginning um, since we've started doing press scrums and really asking so much of them in a time that is very emotionally intense for them, it doesn't really seem fair. And the tennis world is mixed on their support. Yeah, I was going to say, but Raji, like this particular job, this line of work that she is in, um, it's it's required, right? Like if you yeah. talking to the media is not nearly as difficult as you going out there and having the mental toughness to knock back an opponent when you're as great of a tennis player as Naomi Osaka. I guess what bothers me about this is with the athletes. I know Kyrie Irving has been doing this as well in basketball. That it there's a lot. It seems like they want to blame the media for something when, you know, it's a two-way street here because it's it's the media types writing about Naomi Osaka when she was up and coming that has helped to make her such a, a brand superstar. But isn't it enough that these athletes give us their absolute everything during the match? Why are we asking them to also go on mic afterwards and do this performance? They're not actors. They're not politicians. No, they're answering questions about what they went through their mind. Like we learn from them, right? Like I think it's heartbreaking sometimes. You learn to appreciate the effort that they just put in. You sympathize with them. I think it's part of the human story. If they're comfortable, but if they're not comfortable, is it fair of us to require them to put everything on the line for themselves in terms of their mental well-being and just be a ball of anxiety on the microphone. Like, you know, when some of these athletes are admitting to having panic attacks about doing press. Yeah. I, I mean, her statement. Rugged. Yeah. Her statement yesterday, the second, the one that she put out after was really good in explaining kind of the situation, how it's unique to her as well. But I feel like, Raji, we could have this discussion all morning long, but we have to go. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it seems like a good time of day to talk about our one of our favorite topics here in the mornings, and that is driving behavior out there on the roads 
Once again, a new survey shows that we really contradict ourselves behind the wheel. So this is a new survey from BCAA just out this morning, released about half an hour ago. And just one of their findings reveals that 93% of us believe that we are focused drivers, right? Ask somebody, they'd be like, oh yeah, I pay attention behind the wheel. And yet... 22% admit they've had a near miss or almost gotten into an accident due to distracted driving. I don't know, is that a contradiction or maybe did we smarten up after we had that near miss? Well, to talk more about this, we're joined by Sean Pettipa, who's the BCAA Director of Community Engagement. Sean, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So what do you think this survey tells us about our driving habits? I think this survey tells us that there's a bit of a disconnect between what we think is distracted driving and what we're actually doing. Like? Well, for example, as you mentioned off the top, you know, most people do think that they're focused drivers, but then when you probe a little bit deeper, uh, you find out that they're doing a lot of other things that are considered distractions as well. You know, small things like changing the music, interacting with passengers, uh, scanning for street signs, eating and drinking, uh, enjoying the scenery, all of those things uh, are distractions. But what, what our respondents called them were um, uh, that they were multitasking. So, <laughs> you know, in everyday life, we pride ourselves on, on multitasking, but in the car, there's no such thing as multitasking. It's it's just another word for distraction. And I shouldn't laugh at that, but actually it does make me laugh because I think what's happened, Sean, is that we tend, we've taken the idea of distracted driving and associated it, it seems like, only with cell phones. And, and we see that. And we do know that the vast majority of people say, oh, cell phone, bad, I'm not going to use it because there's been a lot of education around that and there's been a lot of talk around that. But it's all the other things that that people are doing and that we're all doing uh, that you don't even realize is taking away from the attention that you should be giving to what's most important, which is keeping yourself and others safe on the road. So what is, do you think, the most dangerous type of driving behavior that we are doing behind the wheel? Quite honestly, it's anything that is taking away from that 100% attention that you have of focused driving, because it's not possible for the human brain to do multiple things well at once. So even the small things that you're doing is taking away from that focus of, of driving. So are we getting better, though, at not using our cell phones? I think we're understanding that cell phones are not a good thing to use, and we are getting better. And again, that's a lot of socialization. There's been a, a lot of work around that. Um, but it's the other things that we, we just dismiss in our minds and we go, no, I'm a focused driver. I, I can do these other things. It's okay. Um, but I'm still focused. But then, you know, well, one in four have admitted to almost being in a crash or actually being in a crash because of something that they've done uh, that wasn't focused. Right. Because the I, I think the changing of the radio and having somebody in the car, like those are pretty distracting. But I don't think we've ever officially considered those to be like distracted driving behaviors. No, I don't think we've, we've, we've done that as much because people will say, well, I have to change the radio and I, I have to interact with my passengers. But I think at the end of the day, if we can reset people's expectations a little bit on what it means to be a focused driver uh, and have everybody kind of um, speaking that same language, I think that, you know, at the end of the day, we'll all be an awful lot more safe on the road. What, um, like how much of an impact does distracted driving have on our roads in British Columbia? How big of a problem is this? It's actually a, a, a very large problem because it accounts uh, as the second leading cause of crash fatalities 
accounting for more than one in four road-related deaths in British Columbia. So it's no small thing. So, you know, with 93% saying they're not driving distracted, but then seeing the actual statistics, there's a definite disconnect between what people think and what people are saying and what's actually happening on our roads. So is it time, do you think, to start talking about distracted driving with a broader umbrella, perhaps? Well, that's why, you know, I'm, I'm so happy to be talking with you today because we do want to remind motorists to, uh, to think outside of just the cell phone. So obviously put the cell phone away, but think about all those other things that you're doing that is taking away from what's most important. All right. Well, Sean, thanks so much for talking to us about it this morning. Thanks for having me. All right, that's Sean Pettipat, who's the BCA Director of Community Engagement. They've got a new dr- distracted driving survey that just came out this morning. And in it, it reveals that, you know what, we think we're great. 93% of us consider ourselves to be focused drivers, even though about one in four admit to having been in an accident or a near miss due to distracted driving. But the thing is, I think we're narrowing our definition of distracted driving. So BCAA is saying, listen, broaden that out. Distracted driving, they're saying, is anything. It's not multitasking. If you're distracted by, you know, trying to find a better song on the radio and you're looking down at the dashboard or talking to somebody who's in your car or, you know, eating, drinking. They said those are all big ones. That's all distracted driving. You know, just yesterday I was walking the dogs and I went to go cross a street. So I was standing there at the crosswalk waiting and somebody stopped to let me go. And I was starting, and I thought, oh, that's so nice that they stopped to let me go. And then I looked over and realized, oh no, they had actually taken the opportunity to check their cell phone while they, while I was stopped there. And I was like, all right, I'll take it, I guess. But it's still happening out there, right? What do you think is the most egregious, distracted driving behavior that you have seen? Is it still the cell phone? I see it less and less. So I actually think we're getting better at that. Or is it eating, drinking? Is it talking? What do you think is the worst distracted driving behavior out there? This is Mornings with Simi. It is a critical, important, continuing conversation. Talking about reckoning with our history of residential schools in Canada in light of the discovery of hundreds of children's remains in Kamloops alone. This was a long, shameful history with many people involved over the years that have a prominent place in our history books, right? Prominent and significant, revered almost, statues to them. So how do we move forward with that reckoning? Just one of the many examples that we have seen in the last few days, University of British Columbia is taking a look at the idea of revoking the honorary degree that they gave in 1986 to the person who was the principal at that Kamloops residential school in light of everything that has now come out. Uh, In Charlottetown, City Council there voted last night to immediately remove statues of Sir John A. Macdonald, the first Prime Minister of Canada, but the Prime Minister who also authored in and brought in the legislation to start the residential school system. So how do we move forward? How do we start that process of going back through history and saying, who did this? Who participated in this? Well, joining us now is Rachel Ann Snow, an Indigenous legal advocate for more on that. Rachel, thank you for being here this morning. Uh, Good morning. Thank you for having me. Where do you think we should start with this process? Well, I think it's really important to hear the Indigenous voices, and sometimes they are uh, multiple voices. So that's important to, first of all, understand that there won't be one approach There will probably be several approaches to how this can be uh, properly dealt with. 
So does this involve, do you think, starting with taking a look at our history books and like the names on places and statues and all of that? These are conversations we should be having. Well, yes. And there are a lot of places already do have indigenous names such as Kanata, which is, you know, the name for village or I think it's an Iroquois name. Canada is name itself. So understanding that, recognizing that, having the recognition so that people understand the contributions that have been made by Indigenous people, that is a good start for educational purposes. What about removing names or or taking another look at what we thought were people's contributions in the past? I think to have a balanced perspective, that is the Indigenous people's, uh, that is the thing that the Indigenous people had been advocating for for years, to know that John A. MacDonald was complicit or that the Indian Act that he set up in 1876 has basically destroyed or continued the genocide against Indigenous people here on Turtle Island. And I was reading more about that, too, because he started it, but many prime ministers in the years after that, you know, continued on, right? Had the opportunity to stop it and did not, in fact, reinforce the system. And they were told. We know uh, for a fact that Dr. Peter Bryce did try to raise alarms and was vilified for it. So there are many facts that need to come to the surface so that people have a good understanding, that balanced understanding. You know, Rachel, I'm glad you brought that up. I just read about that yesterday, uh, that Dr. Peter Bryce and how in the 1920s and early 30s, he tried to tell the government and they shut him down. That's stuff that we just don't get taught. And some of the things that he was saying, because he was a doctor, he was bringing attention to the fact that the sanitary conditions were unthinkable in these schools. And so people, some people I see on Twitter or on social media are saying, well, they basically died from tuberculosis. But the fact that they were put with sick children or not attended to properly is part of the reason for their death. Yeah, he was raising the alarms in the 1920s by saying there was an infant mortality rate of 42%, he said, in residential schools, and he was ignored. He was ignored, and one of the places that he talked about was the Red Deer Industrial School. They began by calling them industrial schools, but that had the highest mortality rate. And then because so many children died and then the Spanish flu came in, they ended up closing that school. That was here in Alberta. Mm. Rachel, where can you recommend a place for, you know, an organization, a company or anybody to really start with to take a look at, you know, the names and places that we see out there on the streets and in our society and how we can improve the situation? I think that's really difficult to me because some of the usually the place names and the significance are really specific. There's specificity in this with the nations like uh, the Musqueam, who are there in Vancouver or where the uh, where that uh, the residential center is right now, or there's some national center there that wasn't properly funded. Uh, they are more more or less the people who you would talk to in that area for names. Right. But then going throughout BC, there are many uh, First Nations and across Canada, many individual First Nations who would have a story, history, a sacred place, or some kind of information about um, what they what they think needs requires some kind of uh, resolution. So it sounds like we have a lot of listening to do. There's listening to do, but I think there's also a chance to do things better. And that's the hope for everybody, that we do things better and that we hear the Indigenous perspective about living in harmony with land and think about going forward together uh, so that 
all our people will have a good chance at survival. I hope so too. Rachel, thank you for your time this morning. Oh, you're very welcome. Appreciate that. That's Rachel Ann Snow, an Indigenous legal advocate, talking about the process of kind of revisiting history here. And I'm glad Rachel brought up that name. So if you want to do a little digging today or, you know, want to talk more about this, Dr. Peter Bryce, B-R-Y-C-E, just Google that name. And it, it is illuminating to learn more about this person who, as Rachel pointed out, was raising the alarm about residential schools in the 1920s and was shut down numerous times by the federal government. That's a part of Canadian history that we just don't learn enough about. This is Mornings with Simi. As of this morning, British Columbia has a minimum wage of $15.20 an hour. That's one of the highest in the country and a steep climb from the $11 an hour or so that was the minimum wage four years ago. The bigger question for employers, though, is, will that be enough to get people into the workforce? We're going to get some different perspectives on this. We'll be talking to the business community coming up in a few minutes. But right now, let's talk to Harry Baines, our Provincial Minister of Labour. Thank you for joining us. Happy to be here, Simi. So does this apply to everybody, every industry? Uh, I would say most. Uh, I think there are some areas like farm workers, they are still on a piece rate, some of them. Uh, there are about 15 crops, but we're dealing with that as well. Uh, but uh, also we're lifting the uh, liquor servers who had even even lower minimum wage before. So they will be enjoying exactly the same minimum wage as other workers in the province, $15.20 an hour. Jimmy, as you may know that over 80% of those workers uh, uh, in the liquor server uh, industry, they were women. I, I believe that, that that is a discriminatory and we need to fix it, so we are fixing it. And I know this was a big priority over the last couple of years to raise that minimum wage to you know, $15 an hour. So what now? Well, I think uh, four years ago when uh, we appointed the Fair Wages Commission, I think we wanted to make sure that there is a a gradual, predictable uh, rate increases uh, so that the businesses uh, will uh, will have the opportunity to uh, to adopt to and and plan their their budgets. And so the Fair Business Commission gave us a pathway, a four year pathway to reach at least fifteen dollars. So this is the last one, fifteen dollar twenty cents an hour, according to their recommendations, is going in today. And going forward, uh, uh, starting next year, June first. Uh, we will be tying it to the uh, the rate of inflation so that the workers will know what their uh, wages will be every year and uh, and the business was all, will also know what their cost is going to be every year so i think it is going to be uh, bring some certainty that, that that's what we heard uh, through the uh, fair wages commission that that's what the business are looking forward to okay so is that has that been put in place then so tying the minimum wage to the rate of inflation every year we will be doing it. I think we need OIC uh, or the legislation to do that. But but that's our commitment. We are going to do it before June next year. And what have you heard from businesses on this? Well, I think there is a, actually this this thing was adopted by businesses. Uh, we had um, uh, the chief economist on the Fair Wages Commission from BC Business Council. So it was a unanimous uh, unanimous uh, recommendations, and uh, businesses uh, said that is the the right thing to do. But having COVID uh, hit us, um, you know, um, no one knew that, that we would be, you know, uh, going through this as we did in the last 14 months. Uh, some businesses are raising some concern, but there are businesses like Anita Hoverman of Surrey Border Trade. She is saying that this is the right thing to do. And she's happy uh, also that we will be tying it to inflation starting next year. 
So I think there, there's a mix of uh, um, uh, messages coming, but I, I think most uh, businesses uh, ask for this uh, through the Fair Wages Commission, and that's why we're doing it. Now, I know a lot of industries are also having a bit of a labor shortage right now, where they're having trouble attracting workers. And I would expect that's just going to get worse with people coming, you know, the pandemic recovery ramping up. Is there anything government can do to help businesses that need to attract workers? Well, I think, you know, one of the uh, um, the challenge, I think, uh, of our successes is that before pandemic, BC had the highest um, um, economic growth and one of the highest and the lowest unemployment rate before pandemic. And now we are achieving almost the same level of uh, pre-pandemic uh, uh, employment uh, I think rates. Uh, we are over 98% now. And certainly there's going to be challenges in certain parts, but I think this should help attract uh, workers because now they know that uh, this is one of the most expensive areas to live, especially the lower mainland that they have a few more dollars in their pocket. They wanted to go, go to work. And see me, there's about 244,000 workers today who are making less than $15 an hour. So their wages will go up. I think this, is, this probably is one of the attract, attractions for the workers to come and work knowing that uh, they would have a few more four dollars in, in, in their pocket starting today. All right. Well, we'll be talking more about it. Thank you for your time this morning. Thank you, Simi. Thanks for having me. That's Harry Baines, the Provincial Minister of Labour, talking about BC's minimum wage today, hitting $15.20 an hour. That's one of the highest in the country. Big climb up, right? But in 2017, we were like $11.35 an hour. So a big change in that four years. But, you know, I've been doing a lot of reading about the labour shortage in the United States right now. And remember, even a couple of years ago in the United States, it was laughable to think that they would have a $15 an hour minimum wage. Remember, city after city, state after state, had some places had tried it and it was just not going to happen. There was pushback. But now, $15 an hour, I mean, that's just a starting point for industries because with the pandemic recovery in high gear down in the states, the industries cannot get people to work for anything less than $15 an hour. Like industry after industry. I was talking about, I was reading about Chipotle the other day in the states. And Chipotle has a starting wage higher than $15 an hour with mental health benefits and a program that allows you to go back to school and they will help you pay for it for a post-secondary degree. That's a company like Chipotle, a fast food company. That's what's going on in the States, right? They're offering incentives, cash bonuses for people to take jobs down there. This is Mornings with Simi. So we're talking about the increase in the minimum wage today, $15.20 an hour here in BC. What does that mean for businesses, particularly businesses who perhaps are already struggling during the pandemic? Well, for more on that, we're talking to Provincial Affairs Director of the CFIB, Annie Dormuth. Annie, thank you for being here this morning. Of course, great great to be on the show. So what is your reaction to this? It seems like, okay, it's high, but really workers, they're expecting this kind of pay these days, right? Well, of course, this has been a phased um, kind of uh, target to the fifteen twenty that has been ongoing for quite some time. But it's just it's just important to recognize that the state of small business it has drastically changed from over a year ago. Um, of course, you know the impacts of the pandemic have been far-reaching, especially to those businesses in the hospitality industries and uh, and even the retail industries that have had you know restrictions on their businesses for more than a year now. 
And uh, considering the fact that 40, only 40% of BC small businesses are making normal sales, we do anticipate uh, that this additional cost increase will be difficult for some small businesses to absorb. Right, but aren't there other businesses as well that are having trouble attracting workers already? And that we were actually trying to get new data on that. Um, we have a new survey going out, I think, in a couple, in and in probably a week here, that's actually going to take the temperature nationally of where the provinces are facing labor shortages. So, yes, that is definitely something we are hearing, um, of course, across Canada. It's, it's not singular to BC. Um, again, however, I have to stress, you know, we, we've been in this pandemic for, for more than a year now. A lot of businesses, you know, they, they face additional cost increases in the form of a payroll costs, you know, the employer health tax, increases in the CPP, CPP EI and WorkSafe premiums. All of this adds up to, to business owners and, and for them, they're just not in a position, uh, many of them, to, to make up additional revenues in the form of increasing their pricing right now. And, uh, and for some of them, this will be difficult for them to, to take on. I would imagine that the other challenge coming in the next few months is, is kind of weaning themselves off of the government supports. And that's exactly true. We're, we're closely watching those, those closing dates um, for, especially for the federal support programs. Uh, recently, the CFIB did call on the federal government to hold off on, uh, on basically changing, um, changing the, the changes to, to the main federal support programs. Chiefly among those is the wage subsidy, which is set to be starting to roll back in early of July. Um, that is definitely far too soon um, with provinces, um, including BC, still in the midst of their reopening plan and other provinces for Ontario that has, you know, a more delayed reopening plan. So definitely something that we're calling on the federal government to hold off on until, again, all businesses are in a position to reopen as much as they can. All right. So you're saying a little more patience is required. That is definitely true. So when it comes to this wage increase, then do you think businesses will be feeling the effect of that in the next few months? It's it's something that we are going to carefully watch for. Again, um, all of this is tied with, with the reopening plan and seeing how businesses or if they are able to to increase their revenues. But definitely we will, for some small businesses, it will be a difficult uh, cost increase for them to absorb. Annie, thank you for your time on that this morning. Of course. Great to be on the show. That's Annie Dormuth, who's the Provincial Affairs Director of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, talking about BC's minimum wage going to $15.20 an hour today. But it's the next couple of months that is really going to be make or break time for so many small businesses in our province, right across the country. With the end of the wage supports and the government programs, uh, you know, that happened during the pandemic and a return to a more normal kind of situation, businesses that perhaps were just hanging on, uh, labor shortage, that was bad before the pandemic. And you know what, even more so now people have changed jobs, gotten out of industries. It's going to be a real struggle out there. And if you're a business that would like to tell your story, just email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about National Accessibility Week. This is a time for us to take stock of the contributions of Canadians with disabilities and the individuals, organizations, and workplaces that are actively working to remove barriers to access and inclusion. Our Raji Sohal joins us now to talk more about this because there's this added emphasis in BC this year. Yeah, Simi, you're right now in the legislature. Politicians are 
actively working on the Accessible British Columbia Act. It's a very long overdue and important uh, piece of legislation. It's already gone through a second reading. And the main features of Bill 6 are that it covers anything that hinders the full and equal participation in society of a person with an impairment. And it also looks at any of any impairment that could be caused by environments, attitudes, practices, policies, information. And then this is the tricky part, communications or technologies. Bill, uh, The bill also gives a uh, cabinet the power to identify and remove um, uh, barriers, basically. And I spoke with Stephanie Kedia. She's the MLA for South Surrey and the BC Liberal Party's critic for gender equity, accessibility, and inclusion. She is also living with a disability and is a wheelchair user herself. So for proponents of the bill, the new accessibility legislation is very flexible, and it's been called enabling where the terms are not defined. So it's very loose. And I just want to mention that we did contact NDP MLA Nicholas Simons. Uh, but he wasn't available for comment before the story's airing. So here is Stephanie Cadieux and her thoughts on the long overdue Bill 6. It's fairly comprehensive. Um, but the one thing that is is missing is a, is a direct statement about communication uh, or learning disabilities. And, and that's important um, because when we miss something and we assume it's included um, and assume it's covered, we're likely to miss it. Okay, yeah, so, so that's interesting. That's those learning disabilities that we sometimes call the invisible disabilities. Yeah, and there's more of an awareness, of course, of what we see, right? You see ramps and doors, the, and you can assess whether they're easy to use. But when we can see it, we forget to be curious about it. And these kinds of specificities are included in the Federal Act on Accessibility, and CADIO wants to see them in the BC legislation too. And, you know, just how can we be expected to respond to invisible barriers? Here's CADIO again. Well, I think this is the interesting challenge and, and yet a challenge that we can put out to employers and individuals and communities, municipalities, lawmakers, um, include people with disabilities who have the lived experience because they know what those in, invisible barriers are every day. They experience them every day. We experience unconscious bias every day, attitudes around why we do or do not need to make something accessible, about the importance of it being accessible and inclusive about the ability of people with disabilities to contribute, and frankly, about their right to contribute equally in our society. Okay, that is so interesting, too, because it, once again, it illustrates, Raji, doesn't it, about why representation matters? Absolutely, Simi. And, you know, we see this with persons of color in positions of power too, right? Like sometimes, you know, diversity boards don't even have uh, people of color in those positions. And so how can we expect to see change if groups are not represented in those positions of power? So in order for representation to be lived, it has to be acted upon. We've spoken the language, I would say, for quite a long time in Canada, but we haven't gotten it right yet. And I think most importantly, people who don't experience disability daily themselves need to recognize that it's their responsibility to make sure that the rest uh, of society, the 25% that does experience a barrier, uh, is included and, and we all have a role to play. Yeah, I think there's a lot of work to do here. Like there's too many workplaces that still have barriers to somebody who perhaps might be in a wheelchair you know, a lot of people, unfortunately, don't end up, you know, 
having that deep understanding or empathy until they know someone or live with someone um, or around someone constantly who has a disability that um, is impairing their experience, their lived experience. And if even me personally, I had a huge blind spot here. It wasn't until I started volunteering with an organization where uh, we were linked up with um, people who were disabled, uh, had disabilities and uh, used wheelchairs. And I was, you know, having to navigate using SkyTrain with someone um, in a wheelchair and just getting around and everything took us twice as long. And I just started to see through their eyes how challenging it was. And, you know, it's not until someone close to you faces challenges, but it, it shouldn't be this way. The most important thing um, I would say is to educate yourself about your own biases. <laughs> Understand, question yourself about, you know, when you see something that doesn't look right, do you do anything about it? So for example, um, when you see a barrier, you see you see shopping cart left left inside uh, the disability parking space. Do you point it out? Do you advocate to the shopping mall or the or the store that they need to keep those clear? Okay, that's interesting. Then, so she's saying we all have work to do here. Not just things that are in the real world. It's also virtually. How are we making it better online for people um, that have disabilities? She mentioned to me that when you're posting a video online, are you captioning them or using alt text for blind people? And also just to think about how someone with a disability might face a barrier to access wherever you are, at work, in recreation, just really anywhere. She also pointed out that the way to get it right is to ask folks with disabilities, hey, what more can I do for you to help your experience? Right. And ask straight up, just how is this for you? Could it be better? See, so simple, but so effective. Raji, thank you. Thank you, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, in a sign that things are slowly starting to get back to normal, the community of Whistler reopened for the summer season yesterday. Now, this is a slow process. And remember, their winter season got shut down prematurely when those circuit breaker restrictions were put into place back in late March or early April. So are they ready? What's been going on up in Whistler? We're joining us now is Jack Crompton, the mayor of Whistler. Thanks for being here this morning. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it must be. must feel like that. How are things in Whistler? <laughs> Oh, it just feels good. I mean, sun's out and people have been working really hard for a long time to be ready to be able to say, please come back. And yesterday, seeing bikes in the in the bike park lineup going up the hill and, and people going hiking, it's, it feels a little more normal, as you said. Right. Was it immediate, Mayor Crompton? Like right away people showed up to start doing all this stuff? Yeah, it felt like it. <laughs> it's... Um, I think, you know, so many of us have been in our homes for so long, being very um, careful and, and not being able to sort of get away that when that opportunity um, comes, we're eager to take it. I think people are still being very careful. You still see a lot of masks um, in public spaces, which uh, I think is important. But I think we're ready. We're ready to be able to uh, enjoy what's been hard won and continues to be something that we fight for to get past this pandemic. Right. I know Whistler was particularly hard hit with some pretty big outbreaks there. What's the vaccination process and rate been like in Whistler? Uh, it's it's extreme. It's you know, high 80%, I think, of people have had at least their first vaccination. I don't know the exact number, but it's high. And um, we had a community vaccination clinic that uh, happened in March and April, 
And so uh, I, I think we'll be seeing those um, back, the sex vaccination be coming back here again uh, sometime soon. But the numbers have been unbelievable. I tell you, uh, vaccines, I think we got to see what they've done in, in history with things like uh, polio. But for me to watch what it ha- happened here in this community and around the province when we were able to get a needle in everyone's arm uh, to our numbers was dramatic dramatic and it's convincing. Yeah, let us tell us about that because I know that this happened up in Prince Rupert, right? So you had this terrible outbreak, the whole community was affected, everybody started getting vaccinated, and then what happened? The, you know, COVID, uh, for all intents and purposes, went to zero. And uh, that is incredibly encouraging, and I think it gave us hope. It sure redoubled our efforts as a community to continue to be careful. And the word that was said a lot here was solidarity, like solidarity with the rest of BC. Let's not get out ahead of ourselves. Let's stay with the rest of the province as we get through this. But certainly it's encouraging to families and, and, and people as they think about being able to live a normal life again. And that's a really big deal. And so I can say as someone who's seen it happen in a small town that as this rolls out across the province, that same kind of opportunity and, and joy and, and the end of this comes near in view, which is great. So what you were saying is it's kind of, um, you know, shown you the power, right, of vaccines and, and making sure they work. Do you feel, do you think a lot of people, have you been hearing that sentiment from other people? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, from the, I think most, I don't have to tell anybody what it's like to go and get vaccinated. We're all doing that right now, but it's pretty emotional. It's strangely emotional. Um, and then to see your community um, move past. I mean, the numbers were unbelievable in, in this town. And to see those go to um, near zero is, is pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. So we know that Whistler is kind of reopened as of yesterday. So what is open right now, Mayor Crompton? What can people do up at Whistler? Well, uh, golf's open. Uh, there's lots of great hiking. All the mountain biking trails are open. Um, restaurants, hotels. Uh, the message that we're sharing is, is please come and stay for a while in our community. I think that uh, as, a, as a province and as a country, one of the best things we can do for the tourism sector that has been hit so hard is to stay longer and, and kind of enjoy all that Canada has to offer. So we hope people do that in our community. Vancouverites are such a huge part of, of, of Whistler and, and, and have been a big part of, of building this place that we've missed having them here. So to be able to invite them back and ask them to stay longer is, is exciting. Right. So that's the emphasis. You want them to not just come for like, what, two or three days, like stay a week, stay longer. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, you know, a lot of uh, people here have decided to take hotels in town <laughs> And, you know, just use the pool and, 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 and celebrate being together as a family and taking advantage of some of those things that have to offer. But, yeah, please come and stay for so a week or longer. Are you hearing that? Is there, is there a lot of bookings taking place or hotels filling up? Oh, yeah. I mean, we went, I mean, as the numbers went down as far as COVID numbers, the numbers certainly went up as far as hotel bookings are concerned. So as soon as we were able to say, please come back. Um, people certainly started to book their holidays here and and get out into nature. All right. Well, listen, good luck. Sounds like things are going well up there. We'll keep our fingers crossed. Yes.
Thank you, Simi. Appreciate your interest in our town. As always, that is Jack Crompton, the mayor of Whistler.